0: Anarchism, what it really stands for. The history of human growth and development is at the same time the history of the terrible struggle of every new idea heralding the approach of a brighter dawn. In its tenacious hold on tradition, the old has never hesitated to make use of the foulest and cruelest means to stay the advent of the new, in whatever form or period the latter may have asserted itself. Nor need we, we trace our steps into the distant past to realize the enormity of opposition, difficulties, and hardships placed in the path of every progressive idea. The rack, the thumbscrew, and the knout are still with us. So are the convict's garb and the social wrath, all conspiring against the spirit that is serenely marching on. Anarchism could not hope to escape the fate of all other ideas of innovation. Indeed, as the most revolutionary and uncompromising innovator, anarchism must needs meet with the combined ignorance and venom of the world it aims to reconstruct. To deal even remotely with all that is being said and done against anarchism would necessitate the writing of a whole volume. I should therefore meet only two of the principal objections. In doing so, I shall attempt to elucidate what anarchism really stands for. The strange phenomenon of the opposition to anarchism is that it brings to light the relation between so-called intelligence and ignorance. And yet this is not so very strange when we consider the relativity of all things. The ignorant mass has in its favor that it makes no pretense of knowledge or tolerance. Acting, as it always does, by mere impulse, its reasons are like those of a child. Why? Because. Yet the opposition of the uneducated to anarchism deserves the same consideration as that of the intelligent man. What, then, are the objections? First, anarchism is impractical, though a beautiful ideal. Second, anarchism stands for violence and destruction, hence it must be repudiated as vile and dangerous." Both the intelligent man and the ignorant mass judge not from a thorough knowledge of the subject, but either from hearsay or a false interpretation. A practical scheme, says Oscar Wilde, is either one already in existence or a scheme that could be carried out under the existing conditions. But it is exactly the existing conditions that one objects to, and any scheme that could accept these conditions is wrong and foolish. The true criterion of the practical, therefore, is not whether the latter can keep intact the wrong or foolish, rather... It is whether the same scheme has the vitality enough to leave the stagnant waters of the old and build, as well as sustain, new life. In the light of this conception, anarchism is indeed practical. More than any other idea, it is helping to do away with the wrong and foolish. More than any other idea, it is building and sustaining a new life. The emotions of the ignorant man are continuously kept at a pitch by the most blood-curdling stories about anarchism. Not a thing too outrageous to be employed against this philosophy and its exponents. Therefore, anarchism represents to the unthinking what the proverbial bad man does to the child. A black monster bent on swallowing everything. In short, destruction and violence. Destruction and violence. How is the ordinary man to know that the most violent element in society is ignorance? That its power of destruction is the very thing anarchism is combating? Nor is he aware that anarchism, whose roots, as it were, are part of nature's forces, destroys, not healthful tissue, but parasitic growths that feed on the life's essence of society. It is merely clearing the soil from weeds and sagebrush that it may eventually bear healthy fruit. Someone has said that it requires less mental effort to condemn than to think. The widespread mental indolence so prevalent in society proves this to be only too true. Rather than to go to the bottom of any given idea to examine its origin and meaning, Most people will either condemn it altogether or rely on some superficial or prejudicial definition of non-essentials. Anarchism urges man to think, to investigate, to analyze every proposition. But that the brain capacity of the average reader be not taxed too much, I also should begin with the definition and then elaborate on the latter. Anarchism, the philosophy of a new social order based on liberty unrestricted by man-made law, the theory that all forms of government rest on violence and are therefore wrong and harmful, as well as unnecessary. The new social order rests, of course, on the materialistic basis of life. But while all anarchists agree that the main evil today is an economic one, they maintain that the solution of that evil can be brought about only through the consideration of every phase of life, individual as well as collective, the internal as well as the external phases. A thorough perusal of the history of human development will disclose two elements in bitter conflict with each other, Elements that are only now beginning to be understood, not as foreign to each other, but as closely related and truly harmonious, if only placed in proper environment. The individual and social instincts. The individual and society have waged a relentless and bloody battle for ages, each striving for supremacy because each was blind to the value and importance of the other. The individual and social instincts, the one and most potent factor for individual endeavor, for growth, aspiration, self-realization, the other an equally potent factor for mutual helpfulness and social well-being. The explanation of the storm raging within the individual and between him and his surroundings is not far to seek. The primitive man, unable to understand his being, much less the unity of all life, felt himself absolutely dependent on blind, hidden forces ever ready to mock and taunt him. Out of that attitude grew the religious concepts of man as a mere speck of dust dependent on superior powers on high who can only be appeased by complete surrender. All the early sagas rest on that idea, which continues to be the litmav of the biblical tales dealing with the relation of man to God, to the state, to society. Again and again, the same motive. Man is nothing. The powers are everything. Thus Jehovah would only endure man on condition of complete surrender. Man can have all the glories of the earth, but he must not become conscious of himself. The state, society, and moral laws all sing the same refrain. Man can have all the glories of the earth, but he must not become conscious of himself. Anarchism is the only philosophy which brings to man the consciousness of himself, which maintains that God, the state, and society are non-existent, that their promises are null and void, since they can be fulfilled only through man's subordination. Anarchism is therefore the teacher of the unity of life, not merely in nature, but in man. There is no conflict between the individual and social instincts, any more than there is between the heart and the lungs the one the receptacle of a precious life essence, the other the repository of the element that keeps the essence pure and strong. The individual is the heart of society, conserving the essence of social life. Society is the lungs which are distributing the element to keep the life essence, that is, individual, pure and strong. Quote, The one thing of value in the world, says Emerson, is the active soul. This every man contains within him. The soul active sees absolute truth and utters truth and creates. End quote. In other words, the individual instinct is a thing of value in the world. It is the true soul that sees and creates the truth alive, out of which is to come a still greater truth, the reborn social soul. Anarchism is the great liberator of man from the phantoms that have held him captive. It is the arbitrator and pacifier of the two forces for individual and social harmony. To accomplish that unity, anarchism has declared war on the pernicious influences which have so far prevented the harmonious blending of individual and social instincts, the individual and society." Religion, the domination of the human mind, property, the domination of human needs, and government, the domination of human conduct, represent the stronghold of man's enslavement and all the horrors it entails. Religion, how it dominates man's mind, how it humiliates and degrades his soul. God is everything, man is nothing, says religion. But out of that nothing, God has created a kingdom so despotic, so tyrannical, so cruel, so terribly exacting, that not but gloom and tears and blood have ruled the world since God's began. Anarchism rouses man to rebellion against this black monster. Break your mental fetters, says anarchism to man, for not until you think and judge for yourself will you get rid of the domination of darkness, the greatest obstacle to all progress. Property, the domination of man's needs, the denial of the right to satisfy his needs. Time was when property claimed a divine right, when it came to man with the same refrain, even as religion, sacrifice, abnegate, submit. The spirit of anarchism has lifted man from his prostrate position. He now stands erect, with his face toward the light. He has learned to see the insatiable, devouring, devastating nature of property, and he is preparing to strike the monster dead. Property is robbery, said the great French anarchist Pradhan. Yes, but without risk and danger to the robbery. Monopolizing the accumulated efforts of man, property has robbed him of his birthright, and has turned him loose, a pauper, an outcast property is not even the time-worn excuse that man does not create enough to satisfy all needs. The ABC student of economics knows that the productivity of labor within the last few decades far exceeds normal demand. But what are normal demands to an abnormal institution? The only demand that property recognizes is its own gluttonous appetite for greater wealth, because wealth means power. The power to subdue, to crush, to exploit, the power to enslave, to outrage, to degrade. America is particularly boastful of her great power, her enormous national wealth. Poor America, of what avail is all her wealth if the individuals comprising the nation are wretchedly poor? If they live in squalor and filth and crime, with hope and joys gone, a homeless, soilless army of human prey? It is generally conceded that unless the returns of any business venture exceed the cost, bankruptcy is inevitable. But those engaged in the business of producing wealth have not yet learned even this simple lesson. Every year the cost of production and human life is growing larger fifty thousand killed, a hundred thousand wounded in America last year. The returns to the masses who helped create the wealth are ever getting smaller. Yet America continues to be blind to the in- inevitable bankruptcy of our business of production. Nor is this the only crime of the latter. Still more fatal is the crime of turning the producer into a mere particle of a machine, with less will and decision than his master of steel and iron. Man is being robbed not merely of the products of his labor, but of the power of free initiative, of originality, and the interest in or desire for the things he is making. Real wealth consists in things of utility and beauty and things that help to create strong, beautiful bodies and surroundings inspiring to live in. But if man is doomed to wind cotton around a spool or dig coal or build roads for 30 years of his life, there can be no talk of wealth. What he gives to the world is only gray and hideous things reflecting a dull and hideous existence, too weak to live, too cowardly to die. Strange to say, there are people who extol this deadening method of centralized production as the proudest achievement of our age. They fail utterly to realize that if we are to continue in machine subserviency, our slavery is more complete than was our bondage to the king. They do not want to know that centralization is not only the death knell of liberty, but also of health and beauty, of art and science, all these being impossible in a clock-like mechanical atmosphere. Anarchism cannot but repudiate such a method of production. Its goal is the freest possible expression of all the latent powers of the individual. Oscar Wilde defines a perfect personality as, quote, one who develops under perfect conditions, who is not wounded, maimed, or in danger, end quote. A perfect personality, then, is only possible in a state of society where man is free to choose the mode of work, the conditions of work, and the freedom to work. One to whom the making of a table, the building of a house, or the tilling of the soil— is what the painting is to the artist and the discovery to the scientist. The result of inspiration, of intense longing, and deep interest in work as a creative force. That being the ideal of anarchism, its economic arrangements must consist of voluntary productive and distributive associations, gradually developing to free communism as the best means of producing with the least waste of human energy. Anarchism, however, also recognizes the right of the individual, or numbers of individuals, to arrange at all times for other forms of work in harmony with their tastes and desires. Such free display of human energy being possible only under complete individual and social freedom, anarchism directs its forces against the third and greatest foe of all social equality, namely the state, organized authority or statutory law, the dominion of human conduct. Just as religion has fettered the human mind, and as property, or the monopoly of things, has subdued and stifled man's needs, so has the state enslaved his spirit, dictating every phase of conduct. Quote, All government, in essence, says Emerson, is tyranny. End quote. It matters not whether it is government by divine right or majority rule. In every instance, its aim is the absolute subordination of the individual. Referring to the American government, the greatest American anarchist, David Thoreau, said, quote, Government, What is it but a tradition, though a recent one, endeavoring to transmit itself unimpaired to posterity, but each instance losing its integrity? It is not the vitality and force of a single living man. Law never made man a wit more just, and by means of their respect for it, even the well-disposed are daily made agents of injustice. Indeed, the keynote of government is injustice. With the arrogance and self-sufficiency of the king who could do no wrong, Governments ordain, judge, condemn, and punish the most insignificant offenses, while maintaining themselves, by the greatest of all offenses, the annihilation of individual liberty. Thus WIDA is right when she maintains that, quote, the state only aims at instilling those qualities in its public by which its demands are obeyed, and its extra is filled. Its highest attainment is the reduction of mankind to clockwork. In its atmosphere, all those finer and more delicate liberties, which require treatment and spacious expansion, inevitably dry up and perish. The state requires a tax paying machine in which there is no hitch, an exchequer in which there is never a deficit, and a public monotonous, obedient, colorless, spiritless, moving humbly like a flock of sheep along a straight high road between two walls. End quote. Yet even a flock of sheep would resist the chicanery of the state if it were not for the corruptive, tyrannical, and oppressive methods it employs to serve its purposes. Therefore, Bakunin repudiates the state as synonymous with the surrender of the liberty of the individual or small minorities, the destruction of social relationship, their curtailment, or complete denial even, of life itself for its own aggrandizement. The state is the altar of political freedom and, like the religious altar, it is maintained for the purpose of human sacrifice. In fact, there is hardly a modern thinker who does not agree that government, organized authority, or the state is necessarily only to maintain or protect property and monopoly. It has proven efficient in that function only. Even George Bernard Shaw, who hopes for the miraculous from the state under Fabianism, nevertheless admits that, quote, it is at present a huge machine for robbing and slave driving of the poor by brute force, end quote. This being the case, it is hard to see why the clever prefacer wishes to uphold the state after poverty shall have ceased to exist. Unfortunately, there are still a number of people who continue in the fatal belief that government rests on natural laws, that it maintains social order and harmony, that it it diminishes crime, and that it prevents the lazy man from fleecing his fellows. I shall therefore examine these conditions.